This morning I get to introduce a speaker that is uh, very important to me. Um, I've always been surrounded by pretty amazing preachers. Um, and that includes here in Chattanooga um, and also at home in Baltimore. Um, pastor Thurman uh, is currently the pastor of New Song Community Church in Baltimore. Um, some of you com dev majors are probably reading or have read about that, uh, that church and what's going on there. And um, he lives there in Sandtown with his wife and four children. Um, New Song is a racially and economically diverse church that acts at the center of healthcare, housing, education, and employment programs in the neighborhood. Um, I'm very grateful to be able to call it my home church, and I'm extremely thankful for Pastor Thurman's teaching and leadership. So um, welcome him with me. Well, good morning. Paul and I uh, were just reflecting last night that the last time the Ravens were in the Super Bowl, amen, um, we were actually living in Paul's house while we were waiting for our house to get finished. And my wife was pregnant with our first child. Now we have four. So a lot has happened since they were last there. That's kind of how we measure things in Baltimore between Ravens Super Bowls. Well, I want to talk just very briefly this morning around this theme, the minister's best friend, the minister's best friend. And I don't know if you've been through this, but I, uh, during the course of this year, I was going through my devotional reading, and there was a passage that just kind of grabbed me. Have you ever had that? And you just want to camp there for a while, and you think about it, and it doesn't go away. And, and I just want to share these verses with you. We're actually going to start, just to make sure you're awake, with a little bit of Bible trivia as we begin. So I'm not going to tell you where these, this passage is from at first, all right? Now, don't try that at home. That's not the way you're supposed to do it, but let's have a little fun with that. Here are the verses. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Anybody know where that's from? Any guesses? It's all right. There's no grading. From, oh, you got that. I should have known. At a Christian school, y'all going to know where the stuff is. It's in Jonah chapter 2. And so if we go back to Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, when I read verse 1, you totally know where the, verse, where the story comes from. But I want to read this passage from verses 1 through 10, and we want to talk just for a few moments about the minister's Best friend, hear now the reading of the Word of God. Oh, wait, you know what? Before I, I get to this, let me set the context a little bit, just as, as a reminder. You guys remember Jonah was called to go and preach a message to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a place, man, people did not want to go. It was violent, oppressive, um, just some cruel folks, a cruel culture in Nineveh. And Jonah was called there to give a message, but he didn't want to go. Instead of going there, he went in the complete opposite direction. He got on a boat and took off, you guys know the story, and started to head out and run away from the Lord. And while he was on the sea, the Lord sends a storm on the sea, on the ship, and everybody's trying to figure out why is this happening, and they realize that it's Jonah. Jonah is the cause. And so he says to them, you know what, just throw me in the water because it's my fault that we're in this storm. You throw me in the water, I'm, the storm's going to go up. And the sailors, they, they don't want to do that. They don't want to kill him. And so finally they, they just give up and they throw him in and the storm calms. 
And the Lord sends a great fish at the end of chapter 1 to swallow Jonah. And that's where we pick it up with the beginning of verse 1. Here now the reading of God's Word. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. And then verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is God's word. Let's open together in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for the word of God, that it's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, which means, Lord, it's able to get beneath the surface. It's able to get beneath the outer port, part that we put out and try to portray, but you're able to get to our hearts, our thoughts, our attitudes, our minds through your word. And we pray you do that in this time. We pray also that by the power of your spirit, not only would you help us understand what we read, but also we don't want what happens here to stay here, but we want it to be felt in our lives and in the community around us when we leave this place. So we're asking that by the power of your spirit, you'd give us power to apply this as well as understand it. We ask in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Now I wonder, besides Paul and I, if we have any other Ravens fans that are here, that are excited. Thank you. There's, there's three. All right. Amen. That's great. Well, one of the things um, that, that we've been wondering is Ray Lewis, this is his last game, and he's going to retire after this game. And it's just been an incredible story, incredible ride in Baltimore. And uh, actually, I was looking last night, and do you know that the last time the Ravens were in the Super Bowl, Ray Lewis is the only player that's left from that team that went back in 2001. I didn't realize that until I looked it up. And so he's been playing for 17 years, and you think, how in the world could he do it? And some people might say, well, performance-enhancing drugs, maybe. Maybe that's, that's an accusation. Or maybe that he eats right, or maybe it's his training regimen, or, or what is it? What is it that keeps him in it, that enables him to keep going for 17 years? Well, as we think about lives of ministry, and all of us, whether you're called to be a pastor or a missionary or a worship leader, whatever you're called to be, all of us, are called to be ministers. All of us are called to be in ministry. But how are we going to make it? How are we going to continue over time? There's a st statistic. I'm not sure the exact percentage, but it said that within five years of people that leave seminary and go to the ministry, the majority of them are out of the ministry within five years. And so what is it that enables us to keep going in ministry? How do we make it? How do we go forward? How do we go 10 and 15 and 20 and, and 25 and 30 years in the ministry? And you might say, well, it's because of education. Well, that's great, and that certainly helps. It's learning Greek and Hebrew. That, that helps. Maybe it's great ministry giftedness. We know some gifted people 
And that's, that's important. Maybe it's ministry skills that people learn over time. Maybe it's experience in ministry, right? What is it? All those things I named are important. But more than anything else, in my opinion, the minister's best friend, what enables us to make it day after day in ministry is the grace of God. That's the minister's best friend. And you say, duh. But as we get into that, hopefully it will make sense. Not just knowing about it in a theoretical sense, but knowing it for yourself and growing in light of that day after day and knowing it more and more and more and more deeply and resting in that and having everything that you do flow out of the understanding of the grace of God. That is the minister's best friend. All of these other things, your education, your skills, your experience are incredibly valuable. But more than anything else, it's only the grace of God that can keep you in the ministry through all the things that you're going to face. Now we're going to look at three things about that in the passage today um, with Jonah chapter 2. There's three elements we're going to look at. We're going to look at the meeting place of the minister's best friend. We're going to look at the frenemy of the minister's best friend. And then lastly, we'll look at the impact of the minister's best friend. All right, let's start with the meeting place. Now think about where you meet your friends, right? You meet them at college. Maybe you meet them when you're out somewhere. You meet them on Facebook. You meet them online or something like that. You think, well, that's the place where you meet your best friends, right? Well, where do you meet the, the grace of God, the minister's best friend? Oftentimes, the place where you meet the minister's best friend is a place that's unexpected, and that is a place of suffering. In verse 1 of chapter 2 again, listen to where Jonah is praying this wonderful prayer, this great, it's almost like a psalm. Notice where he is when he's praying that. From inside the fish, not after he got out of the fish, but while he's still in the fish. That's where he realizes that he's been missing out on the grace of God. In the midst of his suffering, that's where he comes face to face with the grace of God. And you say, how is that a gracious thing, being inside some fish? That's punishment from God, right? That's what it would seem like. But actually, if you go back one verse at the end of chapter 1, it's very interesting. It says, the Lord provided or the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. In other words, what he's saying there is that the fish was not sent there to destroy Jonah, but to deliver Jonah. The fish was not the instrument of his destruction. The fish was the instrument of his salvation. And I wonder if maybe you're going through some things in your life right now, and you're saying, you know, these things are in my life to destroy me. Maybe it's in a relationship with somebody else. Maybe it's difficulties at school. Maybe it's difficulties at home, difficulties in the community around you, and you think that those things are there in your lives to destroy you. At least that's what it feels like. But maybe, just maybe, those might be the meeting place for the minister's best friend. Where in the midst of that suffering and pain and all that you're going through, that's where you're going to learn about the grace of God. There's a story that Paul's tell, heard me tell about a hundred times in our church. It's about a castaway who was on a ship and he ended up being shipwrecked on an island. And so he, after a while, he's trying to figure out how he can get word back that, that he's there on the island and nobody comes. And so he, he basically gives up and says, well, I guess I'm going to spend the rest of my life on this island. And so he builds a hut there to begin the life on his island. 
And so one day he's out, and he go, he's going to gather some food, and he's bringing it back, and he sees some smoke off in the distance. And what's happened is the hut is caught on fire. And so he runs back, and he tries his best to put the fire out, but he can't. It's too late. And so the hut burns down to the ground. And so he collapses down in the sand, and he's just crying. It's like, Lord, all I had was this hut, and now it's taken away. Even that's been taken away with me. And so he cries there, cries himself to sleep on the sand. But the very next morning, he wakes up, and there's a ship that's coming. He sees it. Off in the distance, it's coming right for him to the island. And he, they, they, come and they, they come and they rescue him. And he says, I had given up hope. I thought there was no way in the world anybody could come to rescue me. How would you know that I was here? And the ship says, well, we saw the smoke. That's how we saw it. The smoke from his hut burning to the ground. The very thing that he thought was given for his destruction ended up being to provide for his deliverance. What about you? Maybe there's something that you're facing in your life now and you think it's for your destruction. Maybe Satan has meant it in your life for evil. But God, can you believe God can turn that thing around and use it for your good? One of my favorite passages is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where the apostle Paul is sharing a testimony, really. And he's talking about how there's been this thing in his life that he calls a, his thorn, a thorn in his flesh. And he's been pleading with God to take that thing away. And it doesn't tell us in the Bible what that was. But it just says that he's been going to God and pleading with God to take it away. Have you ever had anything like that? Maybe there's a situation or a condition or a pain in your life. You're like, Lord, please, come on, please, God, take this thing away. Well, that's what Paul's going through. And you know what the Lord said to him, what Paul realized? The Lord said, no, I'm not going to take it away. But instead, what he tells them is this from verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough. I'm not taking that thing away because I want you to understand that whether you have that or not, what's going to bring you life is not your circumstance and not how they're going. What's going to bring you life is my grace. My grace is enough. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. What do you boast about the most? I don't know about, about you, but I, don't, I certainly don't boast about my weaknesses. I try and hide those, right, so nobody sees them. But Paul says, when you've got the minister's best friend, that sets you free to be able to boast about those things because God's grace is sufficient for you. So the meeting place of God's grace, it can be in your pain and in your suffering. Now, the frenemy, the frenemy of the minister's best friend. And, and we use that term, right? The frenemy. Do you all use that term down here in the South? Do we use that? We use that up, there, up where I'm from. And what, the way we use it describes somebody who's going to act like they're your friend, but they're really your enemy to stab you in the back. Well, here, it's even more serious than that. What we're going to look at in a moment, the frenemy of the minister's best friend, it doesn't just, just want to stab you in the back. It wants to destroy you. It promises you salvation, but ends up really wanting to, to deliver your destruction. It promises you life, but it really wants to kill you. And if we go to verse 8, 
amazing verse. Those who cling or those who pay regard to, literally those who worship, those who ascribe the ultimate worth to worthless idols, those who cling to worthless idols. You know what the frenemy of ministers is? The frenemy of all of us. It's idolatry. It's idols. It's anything, I'm not talking about wooden statues, but anything that you would put in your life to pay regard to, to ascribe the ultimate value and worth to. Now, you know what's interesting is the word that's translated idols, it means it's something that's worthless. And so in idolatry, what we do is ascribe ultimate worth to something that's not worth anything. That's idolatry. Now, wherever you minister, there's going to be idols. And one of the things that you have to do is not just exegete the Scriptures, but you've got to learn to exegete the idols of the culture around you. Dr. Ellis, Carl Ellis, talks about the, um, the, the things, the core concerns, he calls them, of young African-American men. And he describes them as dignity, significance, identity, and empowerment. Dignity, significance, identity, and empowerment. And one of the things he talks about is the fact that many young men will look to idols to satisfy those concerns. That instead of looking to the place where it's really found in Jesus Christ, will turn to other things, whether it be the nation of Islam or um, different aspects of hip-hop culture or secularism or whatever it is, we're going to look to something to be able to satisfy that desire, to satisfy that need. What is it in your culture? Well, you know what? It's not just that you have to exegete the culture around you, but you know what? You've got to exegete yourself. You've got to look in the mirror and say, what are the idols of my own heart? What are the things that I'm looking to, to find life, to find my identity, to find my significance, to find my empowerment, to find my dignity? And apart from Jesus Christ, there's nothing that can satisfy that. And when we give our lives to those things, it destroys us. Let's think about it. How did Jonah end up in the fish in the first place? Because of his idolatry. Because Jonah didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites. Because they were, quote unquote, those people. And so here's Jonah, who worships the God who made the heavens and the earth, and he's guilty of breaking the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. What were the gods in Jonah's life? Maybe his nationalism, his classism. He says, what makes me right is because I'm from this tribe of people, and I'm not going to carry a message to those people. And so where does he end up? Because of his idolatry. He ends up inside the fish. And if we're really honest, maybe the, place, maybe the, the reason that we've ended up in, in the dark places that we've ended up is because of our own idolatries. That's what happened with Jonah. But we see also in this passage the minister's best friend in the second part of verse 8. Because here it says, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And that word that's translated grace, it's a Hebrew word, he said, has said. And that means steadfast love or loyal love or covenant love. Now sometimes it talks about um, love between two friends like David and Jonathan when they enter into a covenant with each other. But more often than not, in the Bible, it's describing the long-suffering, loyal 
covenant love of God for his people. And one of the things as I was studying this, man, I kept seeing this word kept coming up over and over and over again all through the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, where, where God, or Moses, excuse me, is asking God to, to show himself to Moses, to show him his glory. God comes and reveals his glory to Moses, and it describes in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in, our translations say love, but it's that word, hesed, abounding in steadfast love. The psalm that everybody knows is what? Psalm what? 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know how that psalm ends? Surely goodness and hesed, goodness and mercy, goodness and love, goodness and steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life. In Lamentations chapter 3, when the writer is just depressed by all that's going on in life all around him, one of the high points, maybe the only high point of that book, is when he says, because of your said, because of your great love, we are not consumed. For your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And one last reference, Psalm 51, verse 1. When David is confessing his sin before God, what's the basis that David thinks he's going to be forgiven? He doesn't come and say, Lord, have mercy on me according to my record, according to the fact that I killed Goliath when I was a teenager, according to the fact that I've been a really good king up until I, when I messed up, according to, to what? According to your unfailing love. He says, blot out my transgressions according to your hesed, according to your steadfast love. But I told people, the steadfast love of God, it's kind of like the love of a grandmother in the hood. There was a, uh, a dear woman in our church who um, was showing us this picture. She was at our house, and she showed us this picture of a grandson. And so we were all passed around, we were looking at it, and he's growing up, you know, he's looking good. And do you know where that picture was taken? The picture was taken in prison. He's going to be in prison for the rest of his life because he participated. He's guilty of multiple murders. But yet that grandmother still loves him. She has a loyal, steadfast love where she's proudly showing around his picture because you can't take away the love that she has for you. Well, that's a small picture, a tiny picture of the love that Almighty God has for us. That's why I say the best friend of a minister is the grace of God and knowing that grace. Now, before we go on, application. Have you realized that this love is your best friend? Or do you have another? What are the idols? What are the worthless idols that you've been turning to? Where are you abandoning the grace that's available to you in your life? All right, lastly, then we got to finish. Quickly, the impact of the minister's best friend. And we see that really in verse 9. It impacts his worship and it impacts his work. Verse 9, those, oh, excuse me, but I, with a song of thanksgiving, he has a song of thanksgiving. And again, where is he when he's praising God? He's inside the fish still. 
He's not out yet. That doesn't come to verse 10. He probably says, Lord, you know, I would like to get out of the fish. That would be nice. But he's praising God anyhow. He's praising God while he's still there. Because even while he's in his difficult circumstances, he recognizes the greatness of God and that he's worthy to be praised. We also see the impact, not just in his worship, but in his work. Look at what he says. With the song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. And then he learns maybe the, the key theme verse of the whole Bible, salvation. It comes from the Lord. And that's clear in this passage. Look, honestly, Jonah is one of the worst ministers in all the Bible. But it's amazing to see what God does even in the life of this messed up minister. Now, you might uh, look here and you say, you know what I vowed, I'll make good these sacrifices. That sounds kind of familiar in the book of Jonah. Well, if you go back to the end of Jonah 1, it says after the pagan sailors throw Jonah in, they start sacrificing to the Lord and making vows to the Lord. After this guy has disobeyed God, run away from God, now they throw him in the water, I believe now their hearts turn to God. And then if you keep on reading in the book, Jonah goes to preach to the Ninevites and gives the worst sermon in the history of the Bible. And the whole city turns and repents of their sin and God spares them. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now, that's not an excuse for shoddy ministry. You're like, that's great. I'm going to be the anti-missionary. And just watch what God does. It's not meant to be a, an excuse for us to do bad ministry. But what it's meant to do is cause us to praise God. Because if God could change hearts of cities of people, even through the disobedience of this messed up minister. Just imagine what God could do with some obedience from his ministers. He'd do whatever he wanted to do. But it's not a cause for us to retreat. It's a cause for us to praise God and say, man, I'm free to give myself and see what God will do. You know what happened with Jonah a little bit later? All the people ended up repenting, and Jonah got mad. And he said, that's why I didn't want to go in the first place. Because I knew you'd say those people. Isn't that a trip? He didn't go because he was afraid of them. He went because he was afraid God would save him. He didn't, that's why he ran away. And yet, God uses that minister to bring about a revival in a pagan city. Imagine what he can do. Now, application. Do we believe this great truth of the Bible? Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, Jonah had to learn that it wasn't up to him to decide who was worthy to be saved and who wasn't. Jonah should have looked in the mirror and realized, man, I don't deserve it, and God saved me. Salvation is of the Lord. And so what that does is it speaks to all of our isms, whether it's racism, classism, sexism, whatever it is. It says salvation is of the Lord. It's not based on your record. It's not based on your merit or on your good deeds, but it's on the grace of God. And secondly, application-wise, will we let this truth set our hearts on fire? That's the minister's best friend. 
so that we'll give him all of our worship and all of our work. But ending, where do we get the power to do this? You say, well, I, the thing I learned today is not to be like Jonah. And then that will make me a good minister. But the call here is not to be like Jonah or not be like Jonah. What this story points us to, and really what every story in the Bible points us to, is the greater Jonah. And the greater Jonah is Jesus Christ. And you say, what is it that makes him the greater Jonah? Well, think about this Jonah in this story. He's called to go to a rebellious people and give a message, but he disobeys. But think about the greater Jonah. He's also called to go to a rebellious people, but yet he obeys in order to bring life to that people. This Jonah disobeyed and ends up spending three days in the, light, in the belly of a fish. But the greater Jonah obeys the call of God and ends up spending three days in the belly of the earth. And he rises again to bring us life. The one, Jesus Christ, who has never clung to a worthless idol, but who gives himself for people who have. That's us. Jesus Christ is the greatest example, the ultimate example of the steadfast love of the Lord. And Romans 8, Paul says, neither trouble or hardship, angels or demons, present or future, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. And he says, if God is for us, then please somebody tell me who can be against us. And what's the evidence that he gives for that? The steadfast love of the Lord. Because Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's because of the steadfast love of the Lord, which is guaranteed to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we can know the minister's best friend. That's what we grow in. Don't you ever think that you graduate from Jesus? That now you just learn in ABC, but now you're going to move on from Jesus. Then you're really going to do some significant stuff. I'm telling you, as a minister that's been in a hard place 13 years and is tired and got gray hair now, when I first got there, they used to refer to me as a young minister. Now I'm just minister. The greatest lesson that that community has taught me is the minister's best friend. It's not our credentials. It's not our experience. It's not our skills. It's not our accomplishments. But it's the steadfast love of the Lord. It's the grace of God. Will you know and grow in that knowledge of the minister's best friend? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. May we never believe that we can outgrow our need for your grace. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the worthless idols that we've been clinging to so that we can forsake them and not forsake your grace. Bless these students, Lord. Thank you for them, all you have for them. We thank you for what you're doing in them right now and all you'll do through them in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. And you all are dismissed. Thank you.